Euros are over. England got to the final. Italy won it after being the better side. And football didn't come home after all. Or did it? Finally, we have a team to be proud of. Not only are these England players good footballers, they're good humans as well. We'll talk through all that, let Ashley gloat for a bit, and talk about a few other things as well in this latest episode of the Third Eye Podcast. Uh, hello and welcome to the Third Eye Podcast. We've decided to do a, a European version of Euro 2020 look back, uh, mainly to allow Ashley to gloat and us to laugh at ourselves. Uh, Italy are the champions, uh, beat England in the final. Good competition, great competition for both teams. Um, so let's chat about it, see what happens. And yeah, some people might listen. Who knows? Uh, I've got with me today a man who has styled himself as the resident Italian on Twitter uh, <laughs> with another trophy in the bag. It's Ashley. Hi, Ed. How you doing? All right. Thank you. <laughs> I also have with me a man who was French until about three weeks ago and then suddenly pivoted to being English again. It's Jules. Oh, so savage and unfair, but I'm not going to bite. I'm not going <laughs> to <laughs> uh, And I've got me, who once again, close but no cigar. I get that a lot. Uh, <laughs> so then, um, I don't think anybody really saw this competition ending as it did uh, with a team that doesn't get to finals ever, basically, getting to the final. And a team that wasn't even in the last competition um, also making it to the final. And, I, you know, it was a great, great final, a great spectacle for the game. Uh, And uh, personally, for my money, I think the best team in the competition won. Fair play to Italy. Ashley, I'll let you have the floor and say what you've got to say. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to try and not be too smug, but it's very, very difficult yeah, like I think you've got it spot on. The, the the best two teams in the competition reach the final, and it's not often you can say that. There's usually some boring old Greece team that somehow make their way through. But <laughs> yeah, it was two two of the best teams, and I'd say England were probably expect more expected to get there, but no one really expected either to make it that far. And obviously, a lot was made about Italy's unbeaten record before, but then there's always the caveat of yeah, well, who did they play? And the same with England was like, yeah, they've got a really good team, but who have they really beaten in the last however many years? So it was great to see both teams make the final. Um, and obviously, I'm absolutely delighted that Italy won. It was fucking amazing. And like you said, we weren't even in the last competition. So to to do this well means so much to football in Italy and, and Italians across the world. And yeah, yeah, it was so hard to not be... Uh, sort of inconsiderate to the English people around me, but yeah, you know, can't care. Hold on, hold on. Let's let's. I'm <laughs> going to call out a couple of things at this stage. Ash, can you remember how long after the final whistle you sent an Italian flag on our WhatsApp group? <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, though, I was impressed by how restrained all three of us were by yeah. reading it and just completely <laughs> ignoring it and going, "Oh, oh yeah, not yeah. rising to the bait." <laughs> I, I, not a I think Ash, to be fair, was um, was was moderate on our WhatsApp group. Definitely not moderate on Twitter, but but that is his own domain. He is he is he is at liberty to do what he wishes. Um, the the thing that seems unfair to me is that you have witnessed your country lift two international trophies in your lifetime. Uh, three? No, yeah, no, two. It was just a few finals that I've seen us 
just I can't have forgotten. I'm just delirious with the latest one. So many finals for you that you don't yeah. need to wait fifty years in between, do you? <laughs> no. Yes. no. We can we get into it a little bit more, but I think uh, certainly from our point of view, Jules, um, pretty relaxed about it because partly because I didn't expect England to win anyway, but but partly because uh, it was a a pretty even final that came down essentially to uh, the striking of a ball. Um, and I can accept that because that's football. Uh, the only thing that I kind of did take exception to was this idea that somehow there was this immense pressure on England to win, which I don't think ever existed. And it was quite interesting that I it felt to me like we were just enjoying the ride and what happened happened. I don't know if you felt the same. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Um, I don't think many pundits had England winning it ahead of time, certainly out of us us four. No no one at England I think getting beyond the quarter final. So it was <laughs> we'll get we'll get Oh to that. yeah, I know. I know. But, but you know, I I don't think anyone was saying everyone was saying, look, France are the clear favourites. Germany uh I think Germany and Portugal were the other kind of hot hot takes. And then after that it was a pretty even field. Um so no it didn't feel like there was a, a, a crazy amount of pressure. Um, except for the pressure that, that we sort of put on ourselves. I think we got we got pretty pent up about it and we did the equivalent of sort of going to your own stag do and sort of throwing up at 4pm because you just had too many beers on the train. Like you didn't even really make the main event. You were so panicked. Mm. You're so pent up that, you know, it, it all kicked off. But no, I think, yeah, the best the best team won. Um, and, and from an English perspective, it it has been lovely not so much to watch all the football so I wouldn't say we've played amazing football but it's been lovely to fall in love with an England team because yeah. I, I haven't loved an England team before I think mm. I don't I know think there was, I think there was pressure on the England team from outside of England more than within like like you said here you were just enjoying the ride it doesn't happen mm. often enough for you to really feel the pressure um, and I think for the most part that showed in the players performances but um, there was there was definitely pressure in England from from abroad. Obviously, we there was a whole big thing made about it's coming home and the chant and whatever it's intended, uh, whatever it was first written to be, or however whatever the lyrics meant. It obviously didn't translate that way abroad for a numerous number of reasons. I don't think we've got enough time to go into that. So for that reason, there was a lot of pressure from abroad externally. and also externally, yeah, and also because. You can't deny there's, you know, the home advantage. It's a statistically proven advantage in football. So there was that pressure on England. It wasn't, it's not the same pressure as when, say, Brazil make a final or France, because there's, the, there's expectation as well as pressure. It's there's just that, um, this just felt like it was the, the year for England. Everything, everything seemed to align, but it just fell short, unfortunately. It's, it's interesting. I've had the um, I've had the it's coming home debate with a couple of people on Twitter, and I think my perspective on it is I understand partially because of translation, and partially because people abroad don't quite understand the context of the English culture around Three Lions. That that song isn't intended to mean we're going to win the tournament, but you can see how it gets lost in translation, yeah. and obviously. Um, the further we go into a competition, you start to kind of go, actually, maybe we can win it. And, and I don't hold it against any England fan. England got to a final and thought, oh, we've got a chance, because of course we had a chance. Um, but it was, I think Jules is right, it, it was nice to fall in love with a group of players who represent so much more than just football. 
Uh, and I think yeah. that's been a particularly bitter pill for particularly for people in the other home nations that instinctively want to hate England for being English. But then there's this group <laughs> of players that are intelligent, progressive, forward-thinking, decent people that, that represent so much more about Englishness and about kind of our national way of being and the way we think of ourselves so much more than just being footballers. Um, even to the extent of Tyrone Mings completely embarrassing the Home Secretary and calling her out on her hypocrisy. Like, let's let's have this right. A politician at the start of the tournament said that taking the knee is gesture politics and then at the end of the competition acted outraged when racism happened. Um, Fifteen years ago, an England player wouldn't have stood up to a politician like that and put themselves across so eloquently and tapped into the national psyche and the way that normal, reasonable-minded people think. And I think that's what's so special about this group of players. It's not about the football, whether we get to a semi-final, a final, whether we go out in the first round. They're a group of players and a manager and a setup that you can relate to. And that's something that we haven't had for a very long time. No, I think the hatred that you sort of or not hatred, that's probably not the right word, but there was this feeling within England that I certainly noticed, probably because I'm sort of looking on the outside, where it's us against the world, which is pretty much what we all do with our clubs. Like, there's just, that is what Sir Alex Ferguson did so well at United. Mm. You start to say, look how everyone hates us, look out, look at what they're saying about us in this song, and they hate our players for this reason, they think we're all hooligans, blah, 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 where I don't actually think that was the impression from coming in from abroad it's certainly not what I saw um but you know you, you do what you gotta do to try and get that motivation and you know it works like I said it, it was one of Serge Ferguson's greatest tools wasn't it us against the world so um just yeah I just think that was a point worth making but like I you said the, the England team just seemed to represent so much more than a group of football and I've I've never felt like an Englishman despite growing up and being brought up I had this conversation with my um, with, with my fiance's parents the other day, and actually did, I won't get too into it because it's quite depressing. But um, I've never, I've never felt like an Englishman at all, and I've never had any sort of connection with the English football team. But this year, it was, it was hard not to, hard not to love them because they just, they epitomised everything that's great about the British culture with the diversity and just with, um, you know, your Marcus Rashford and your Tyrone Mings and like you said, just the way they've stood up for the real the real British people and not what some people want us to see. Amen to that. Just a shame that they can't keep the bloody ball in the middle of the park on the deck and <laughs> punt it into the bloody stands. Well, I was going to say, well, uh, that's a nice segue actually into the game. Um, Ash, you made a, an interesting point um, on the group chat and on Twitter that, that got me thinking. I, I never tweeted about it because I, I was too busy enjoying the game to tweet at the time. At half-time... I felt like England were in control of the game. If you look at the stats, Italy had more shots, they had more possession, they were more creative. But it didn't feel that way. It felt like it, the cards were falling nicely for England. And, it, and I felt like if the second half went the same way, we'd probably see it through. 
Uh, I also thought the second half wouldn't go the same way because I know how Gareth Southgate's go. But <laughs> but it, it was it was interesting for me. We obviously got off to that electric start. The goal after I think it was a minute and fifty seconds or something ridiculous. I barely even got my pint. Um, <laughs> and it, it felt pretty comfortable. Is it an interesting? Uh, I don't know. An interesting case study in the way that sometimes stats don't marry up to the way that we view the game kind of on an emotional level did did you feel the same from the opposite side or did you feel like Italy were more more in the game than it felt from my perspective yeah you you never see the game for what it is when you're that invested in it it was a massive final that we were just um I mean I was hiding behind a cushion the whole game I ran out (laughs) nails I don't think I've got any more fluid in my body to sweat it was so intense Um, nice image (laughs) but yeah, just I just I just remember looking at him and thinking, what are you talking about? And I think a lot of it came from because I've already had this conception of Rio Ferdinand from what he's been saying the whole way through the tournament or from the quarterfinals, basically said it's England's and no one can beat us. And a lot of that was just, you know, just for fun for the TV. But it sticks, doesn't it? And at half time when I heard it, I actually left the room. I was like, I can't listen to English pundits talk about this game because... Um, <laughs> I'm going to get totally, angry. totally justified. Yeah, it was ridiculous, wasn't it? Like, and don't get me wrong, the reason why it was looked comfortable for England from that first half is because you were in the lead for a start and from early on, and then for the next maybe maybe ten minutes you looked okay, and then Italy just came into it and grew into it after that. I don't think you had much. You weren't causing us any threats after that, and. The reason why we didn't look like we were in control despite having the ball is because the six shots we had were shit. <laughs> they, were, they were not good shots and Pickford wasn't challenged. I can't remember a single shot in the first half mm-hmm. that really challenged him. But Rio Ferdinand saying at half time that you were dominated. He used the word dominate. And I just, I took exception to that for obvious mm-hmm. reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Jules, um, there's, there's been a lot of talk about Gareth Southgate all the way since 2018 about him being a conservative coach small C uh, and I think we've seen it a few times we saw it obviously most obviously in the Croatia game in the semi-final where we should have won that game and didn't because we weren't brave enough uh, we saw it again against Scotland in the group stage which for me was the poorest England performance under Southgate and then we saw it again I think in the final when you saw the team shoot and you saw five at the back what was your uh, what was your mode of thinking? Were you thinking, trust him, he's got it right, or this isn't quite brave enough? My head said trust him because, you know, none of us are the coach. It's his choice. It's his call. <laughs> like, you know, I think we, we all like to be armchair pundits. Um, but my my gut instinct was I felt like when we made that move, we ceded the midfield to the best midfield in the competition. Um you know, as soon as you play fundamentally two centre mids versus three in there, in order to have extra, and in order to have an extra centre back, you are seeding that area of the pitch, um, and that for me was a problem. And I think I, you know, I, I get that stats don't you know matter to everyone, and it's you know it's not as simple as that. But when you play a final and you only have the ball for you know thirty, I think with thirty three percent possession. Um, you can't expect to really score many goals. So we, we went into the final, and as soon as we put out that team sheet, we essentially adopted the sort of like, right, well, we're going to be the Burnley to your city. 
mentality. <laughs> because as soon as you make that, as soon as you decide to, to cede the centre of the pitch and say we will sit off and be defensive, you are acknowledging that basically you don't want to both play at your capacity because mm. you think theirs is better than yours. Mm. It must. Have, I wonder whether Southgate uh, was thinking after two minutes. Bloody hell. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, before I say this, it's worth pointing out, I actually agree, because hindsight's a wonderful thing. We know now we should have been braver. We didn't mm. know that at the start of the game. Um, and for what it's worth, I think he's earned the right to yeah, take that's his team opinion. to the next level now. But um, after two minutes, England go 1-0 up. You're thinking, with the defensive record this team's got, if anyone's going to break it down, it's going to be Italy. But if you're 1-0 up after two minutes and you decide to play a low block and keep it tight, you think, well, it might not be pretty, but we might well hold this out for the next 88 minutes. And then suddenly it's a 1-0 masterclass and you've out Italian the Italians. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it, obviously, it obviously didn't end up, end up that way. But what, one particular highlight, like the skill to, to score that from Luke Shaw... <laughs> To score that finish, isn't it? It's oh. just an outstanding finish. Yeah, and the cross as well. Is Trippier England's best right back? You've got about fifteen of them that could make the first team. <laughs> to be fair, but it's, no, there's a lot obviously made about Trent Alexander Arnold's strongest strength being a cross, but that you can't get it more spot on from Trippier. Mm. That was a phenomenal cross, and I the think... run from Harry Kane and Sterling to take the whole of the Italian back line away. Was I really that really worried me because I thought this is this is what's going to go in that on from now on because Insigne doesn't want to track back, Chiesa doesn't want to track back, and we, we've got a midfield that's obviously going to be trying to keep it compact in the middle. But yeah, you just never it just never played out that way. And there's no obviously you mentioned that, that thing about hindsight, and there's no way of saying whether being more attacking would have made a difference because then you leave yourself exposed to the likes of Chiesa and, and Insigne mm-hmm. who are in my opinion, two of the best players in their position in Europe. Um, so, yeah, I, it's hard to say the Texans were completely wrong. I suppose it's just that if you lose a final, you want to see yourself losing and giving it a go, don't you? Yeah, and I think I think the we talk a lot about you know learning and South and you know Jim, you say South has earned the chance to take this on for the next year and to and to go again. Mm-hmm. I think when we lost to Croatia, I don't think we were as good a team with as good a talent pool. And in this tournament, the one reason I feel more regret, you know, whilst acknowledging it is Southgate's choice, is that I think we do, we have one of the most talented squads. I mean, you look at the attacking players we have. So for me, the big question to him, which I would love to ask him once he's taken a well-deserved few days to kind of, you know, nurse his wounds and, and have a, have a respite. Um, if you are going to look at our team and say, well, who's going to have the technical level in the centre of the pitch to be able to compete with a team like Italy so that you don't have 33% of the ball, you can try and have 50. <laughs> who are the players who you know are maybe in there? And you'd have to say Bellingham and Foden are remarkably gifted mm. in that in that skill set. I think that that's the challenge for him now in the next year is do you, how do you integrate them in so that yeah. In the semi-final, or, you know, fingers crossed for a World Cup, you don't have this experience again of sub thirty-five percent possession and you know playing the counter. And maybe he was slightly unlucky because obviously he had the Foden injury, and 
and he's learned from from this tournament that uh, he's got at the moment. I think mm. I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to say that England had the best attacking talent in the competition. Yeah, but it didn't have anywhere near the best midfield. Uh, you got a solid defence, slightly dodgy keeper, very good forward line, mm. lacking a little bit of bite in the middle, uh, and that that's going to be the next thing for England. Like you say, is kind of nurturing that that talent. But m- maybe we'll see that because this, if you look at the profile of the England team, um, it's it's very very good and it's only going to get better. Uh, I'll leave that there for now because that's I kind of come back to that in a minute. But uh, in the second half, uh, Ash, it felt to me straight away like uh, the momentum was shifting. Yeah. And as soon as Italy scored what was, I think from an England perspective, a really scrappy, disappointing goal to concede, from that point, I never felt like Italy were not going to win the game. No, and I think that's absolutely fair to say. I don't think anyone would have thought otherwise other than maybe that two or three minutes you had the ball in extra time that you looked maybe a little bit threatening but it looked comfortable the disappointing for me as an Italian fan was we didn't seem to have that killer bite and I think much of that is because we lacked a a, a striker who is a proper focal point who's going to occupy centre-backs if we if Harry Kane was for Italy or if we had a Lukaku then <laughs> uh, you could say that like if if my auntie had wheels she'd be a bike. But um, the point you know that's that's what we seem to have lacked. Um, but yeah, we is it is it we, too simple, Ash, to to say in the semi final? And I, and I think Mancini probably deserves a huge amount of credit because I think he made some tactical adjustments for you which really worked in this game. Yeah. In the semi final, Danny Olmo gave you an absolute nightmare. Yeah. as this kind of false nine. And you played a lot better when he put Insigne between the lines and he brought on another wide man, didn't he? Like, it's kind of yeah. funny. He, he, he saw the tactic and thought, actually, that's, that's quite good. <laughs> that's what separates him from your Southgate. No offence to mm. Southgate. But yeah. I think there was a running theme with England games where you made very few subs and most of them were late and didn't really impact the game as much as you would have liked. Whereas Mancini, he spotted the um, what was going on in the game, even though we had um, a lot of possession still. He saw what we were lacking and what the danger was, and he corrected it straight away. Bringing on Cristante was, um, I mean, he's not a world-class player by any means, but he is a player that allowed us to up that midfield even more and have Insigne do whatever the hell he wanted, because that's where he's at his best. When he's out on his left and... You got asking to play as a left winger, then he's quite predictable because he, you know, he's going to go down a little bit and then cut it on his right and try and have a shot, and that's not easy to do when you're up against Walker. So, haven't we needed that ability to, like you said, bring on another wide man in Berardi who who isn't small himself either to come and be forward and have a bit of still in midfield? It changed the game completely, and I was felt confident from the first five minutes of that second half that we were going to go on and get at least one goal. Mm. My um my brother said to me, he actually he actually texted me ahead of the game once we played the back three and said, I think we've thrown it. It was like from, from the moment he saw that. But mm. the only other tactical thing he said to me afterwards was, or, or sorry, before the game even, um he said, Insigne versus Walker is the worst matchup for Insigne. Yeah, like like that's a nightmare because you're like Italy's maybe cutest and most like imaginative player is 
just on lockdown versus like the Terminator. But <laughs> as soon as as soon as Insigne was moved into the middle, like it suddenly means you're out of Walker's remit and you're suddenly dancing in kind of a different dancing a different tune. And it, it's that is the kind of tactical adjustment which I think we didn't make mm. when that happened. And, I, and you saw Cristante come on and Insigne. I was thinking, well, do you take off Mount and bring on Henderson and put three centimids in there? Just, you know, is what's your reaction? Because the other coach has made a decision here. So yeah. are you really saying you think you don't have to adjust at all? It's it's an interesting one because uh, I, I had a, a conversation about this earlier uh, with somebody over a coffee, funnily enough. Bloody Italians. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, at the time, I thought exactly the same thing. It, it felt like it needed Henderson, possibly even just to slow the game down a bit, which sounds a bit odd, but it, it felt like we're being pulled all over the place. Um, but I guess to give Southgate the benefit of the doubt, if you look at what he's done over the last five years, he has taken England further than they've been in tournaments for a very long time by being conservative. And in that game, uh, you're 1-0 up. If you're Southgate and you make a sub, and then you concede, and you end up losing, you get absolutely vilified for making a sub. The flip side is he doesn't do anything, you try and hold yeah. out. In the end, <laughs> vilified he, anyway. penalties. Yeah. he gets vilified for not making a sub. So he's kind of, he in that sense, he was in a no-win situation. What I think he will learn now, and what he what he should learn, hopefully for the next uh, for the next tournament, is that being brave more often than not pays off. Because I feel like the one time he really was brave in this uh, in this tournament was the team he put out against Germany. Yeah, which would have it was that was his England career was done to. if we went out out then. Um, so I kind of get it, and it's it's an interesting point about um, Mancini. He he definitely outcoached Southgate in the final. I thought Southgate uh, Mancini, funnily enough, was outcoached by Enrique yeah. in yeah. the semi-final and got away with it. But he has it's it's a testament to him, and they're a very rare breed of um, footballer that, that Mancini was a superb player, a superb club manager. And a superb international manager. Yeah, not many people can say that. <laughs> I, think, I think the next person who will be able to say it is probably Zidane. Um, when he takes over with France and inevitably wins with like the most <laughs> dour defensive yeah. style of football. Um, um, well, he hasn't done it with a Sampdoria like Mancini has. Though. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's true. Mancini has done it at every level. Well, yeah. every level in the top tier. And, and he's... Just, Swellest man in football. Um, uh, just before we get on to the P word, um, t- two talking points uh, with the, the potential uh, red cards or the talk about the red cards um, for Chiellini and Jorginho. Um, I'll, I'll get both your thoughts on on each. Uh, Jules, uh, when I when I looked at at uh, Chiellini, first of all, um, it it felt like a yellow. It felt it, like a professional foul that makes him a shit out, but that's why he's a good player. Uh, it didn't feel like a red, um, and it's interesting that a lot of people that have got into the game uh, or got into the tournament that, that aren't regular football watchers 
were questioning why that's not a red, um, which is is in, an interesting thought point. I thought. Yeah, I think it demonstrates the the naivety of, as you say, that the, the fans who bought the retro shirts but couldn't have named more than about six of the players on the pitch in the first game. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, look, it's it's dastardly. It's Machiavellian. It's undeniably Italian. I'm pretty sure there's I'm pretty sure there's a lecture on, on Catanaccio at that school of defensive <laughs> coaching, and this this will be heralded as one of the great the great Chiellini sort of dark art moments. But if if and, you know, Ash made a great point. If it was John Stones on Immobile, I'd want him to do the exact same thing. So mm. w- was it was it also undeniably in, it, well? Also, it's going to make for so many good memes. I think we're all going to get a <laughs> lot of great content. I've, I've already seen it. a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be a lot. But, involving pineapples and pizzas. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it might also be, you know, it was it was undeniably, it felt cruel. If he had done it to Kane, it wouldn't have felt so cruel. But to do it to Bukayo Saka, who's basically just like this little sort of lovable sprite of a sort of sweet human being, um, made it feel especially mean. It did feel a bit sort of, you know, a bit cruel. Um, but no, it's absolutely not a red. Um, and, you know, we just have to move on with it. Mm. And then the the other one, um, which and th- this is not sour grapes. I, I don't think it would have changed the game in any way. But my view of the uh, the Jorginho uh, tackle on Grealish uh, was that he, on balance, probably should have gone off for that. Ash. Yeah. And I think we spoke a bit before we started recording and. The first thing it reminded me of was Ampadu sending off against Italy for something quite similar. Um, in fact, probably something a bit softer because you could argue his foot was closer to the ground than Jorginho's was. And it falls into that category where once the referee says it's a yellow, VAR can't change it because he was in the best possible position to see it. He saw exactly what happened. Um, but you can't... The, the, the point that he got the ball is completely irrelevant in my point of view and this is at the time obviously I was saying get up you fucking weakling like <laughs> you're fine you've got another leg don't worry about it it's never a foul but obviously looking back yeah getting the ball is completely irrelevant you can't go in with your studs you can't go in that high and whether he meant to get his leg or not is it's not the point the fact that he was reckless and dangerous and that's why he hit his leg and he could have done more damage than he did he was fortunate I think I wouldn't just, yeah, I think Ash, that's completely fair. And, um, you know, at least you can admit that it probably was the red, uh, which we all, we all should sometimes be willing to do. Um, I think the two things which stood out to me about this, um, that technique of when there's a 50 50 essentially stepping on the ball is one that I see a lot of academy players do. Um, I think it's a very common technique even more so now that people grow up playing on concrete or on Astros where they don't slide. The chief architect, the person I see it do, do it more than anything else, we shouldn't forget, is Raheem Sterling, who has had several mm. ones that should have been red cards in the Premier League for the yeah. same thing, because every time he tackles, he essentially stamps on the ball, and if he goes over it and catches your ankle, he does that a lot. So, yeah. you know, it's not he's not the first man to do it. The one thing I would say is that my... I was talking to my one of my best mates in advance. I said to him, you know, the one thing we should be aware of going into this final is that the Italians are, in my view, the greatest shithouse team in world football, club or country. And the shithousery of Jorginho to having stamped on someone else, roll around holding his ankle, 
is quite spectacular. Yeah. And 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 the Italians did get. I think you had seven yellow cards, yeah. six in ninety minutes, if my maths was correct. <laughs> and you know, it, it was it was an art in making regular fouls, being willing to give away yellows, both centre backs on yellow, a cynical play, <laughs> centre mid could have been sent off. But it's I think there is um, there is sadly a bit of a skill in treading the treading that line of competitiveness without mm, yeah. like, stepping over and it, just yeah. about staying on the right side. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Italy absolutely nailed that that edge against you know an England team who I think are probably one of the most physically imposing teams. And yeah. you know, look at those centre mids. You would not want to tangle with with Rice and Phillips. Three big centre halves, like Luke Shaw's a pretty aggressive fullback. Kane's a dark arts man himself. Like, you know, England are not an easy team to line up against in that respect. And you, you gave away yellows, but at the end of the day, you scored a set piece and you probably won that, that physical battle. So I, I, I can only commend that level of shithousery. Yeah, it's something that we, a lot of, we've got a lot of, we rightfully got a lot of credit for our beautiful attacking play, but also, Sorry, against Spain, but there was also that stat against Belgium, where I think it was it the last like twenty two minutes the ball was actually only in play for about nine because of mm. all our shit houseery. That's honestly like that is the master. You can't teach it. Like you just the players they have to know <laughs> what to do in the moment, and when it, when it happens for you, you're all for it. Um, so yeah, you need you need to be a shit house. That's how you win tournaments. <laughs> On that note, penalties. We'll keep it brief because I think it's. I think it's um, whether you win or lose penalties are an awful way to decide. But the the kind of the best worst way to decide a football match. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the quality of penalties in this tournament as a whole was absolutely appalling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for a good game, I thought it was a really naff end to it. Is even even the Italian penalties weren't great, and it, it's just unfortunate that that England had three successive really weak penalties but um, I don't know what you think Jules but to me it doesn't feel like the penalty hoodoo of old it just feels like it was one of those days yeah I think I think there's there's an obvious reason that the Italians were happy to go to penalties and didn't really press on in extra time. Is Donnarumma by any chance? And his name is Donnarumma. <laughs> <laughs> when you've got a six foot seven beast in goal. Yeah, same reason Italy were happy with, with Spain. Italy looked at Spain and were like, yeah, you know what? You've got Unai, Unai Simon. We've got Donnarumma. <laughs> we are more than happy to take, to, to roll this dice. And Italy loaded the dice with a, you know, freak of an athlete. <laughs> and, and it paid off. Um, I, th- I think the penalties weren't actually awful penalties. Um, from England, like I know Rashford hits the post, which obviously is, you know, but it, it wasn't appalling. The other two are hit vaguely into the corner. I just think he's a good keeper, and they'd sight themselves out. Um, but that's you... interesting. I, I I slightly disagree with that. Um, well, do do you think they were good? Do, sorry, I do you thought, think they were bad penalties? I thought Rashford's was the worst of the three. Which doesn't hit the target for the, for the simple <laughs> reason that it's not on target, but also. It's easy to say as somebody that's never been a professional footballer, right? So completely understand that. But to me, if you're a, if you're a footballer in a major final and you've got to take a penalty, do two things. First of all, get it on target. Second of all, twat it as hard as you can. <laughs> and if you make, 
if you make the keeper make a save and he saves it, fair play. There's oh. nothing else you can do. But if you're up against Donnarumma, there's a there's a lot of body to get down. To the so floor. that's why I actually... Hit it low, I, hit it hard and get it in the corner. So I... I mean, obviously, I'm I'm not a professional footballer, but I probably played the most football out of us on the pod. It is not as simple as just training to hit the corners. Like, like I think it can be a bit naive when people like, you know, oh, it should just be like in rugby where you can just train a hundred times until you do it mechanically. No pro tennis player doesn't hit double faults. You know, no rugby kicker is perfect. This is part of, you know, it's not as easy a skill to execute as I as it can appear. Um. I actually think that Rashford's penalty was the best of the missed ones because when you're facing a keeper like Donnarumma, you have to try and outfox him because unless you are Harry Kane and you can genuinely, you know, nine times out of ten hit that corner, you need a bit of disguise. You need you need to suggest you're going one way or another. Um, you know, it, the execution wasn't right, and that's part of the risk in that style. Um, but it's it's a very hard thing. I, I think Rashford would score more penalties if you got him to take 100 doing that, then Harry Maguire breaking the camera. Because it was it was amazing that he did it. But believe me, I don't think he would be able to break the camera as many times as Rashford would score that goal. No, I think, yeah, a lot of credit goes to Donnarumma because who would have thought that we would have found a replacement for Gigi Buffon as quickly as we did? He is sensational. I think he's going to go down not only as one of the best of his generation, but genuinely could go down as one of the best we've ever seen between mm. the sticks. Um, I just want to make a point, I think we'll be remiss if we don't talk about the how brave it was for the young lads of Rashford, Sancho and Saka to even step up. There were Sorry. other, other uh, more experienced players there that for whatever reason um, Southgate decided to go with those three. And if you found yourself being one of the fucking idiots that decided to use their colour as a reason to abuse them, stop listening and go and get yourself some fucking education. Absolutely. Um, 100%. And even aside from the racism, which obviously is, is abhorrent, I don't think anybody, as much as we can kind of moan about the technique, uh, any nobody can really hold it against any of those players yeah. taking a penalty and missing. It's just ha- it happens. It's football. Barcelona got it spot on for me with their tweet. I don't know if you saw it, but it was a picture. I think it was either this morning or, or yesterday. It was a picture of the England team afterwards just saying... Uh, missing penalties and losing games is part of football. Racism isn't. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's Amen. Kind of I think that'd be a good point to come on to what did how, how much we enjoyed this tournament. I don't know you, Jim, but for me, maybe because it was the most recent and it felt like we've been waiting for it forever. But once we once we knew that Christian Eriksen was doing well, I enjoyed this tournament as much as I can remember ever enjoying any mm. other. Yeah, I, I think it's possibly a bit of um, bit of England bias because yeah. we took part in. It's always even if even though we lost the final, it's nice that the competition doesn't continue without you. Um, <laughs> it, it, there was just something about it that was special. It, the football, the quality of the football, I thought was great. Um, but there weren't many teams that I thought were genuinely outstanding. I think the only um, really um, well the the best team in the competition were Italy. The second best team in the competition were England, and I would say the third best team were Denmark. And the third yeah. best team were Denmark. <laughs> just about to say, and they they were you know the final well the final two and one of the final four. So um, so in that respect, it felt like 
the right teams got to the right places. Um, it was nice to have fans back, and I think it we kind of took football carrying on without fans for granted, and it was it was nice in the world we were living in to have football at all. But it's become so much more special to have fans back again. Um, and I think um, even though some people are quite kind of bitter about it and carping about home advantage, I think it's been nice for 11 different countries to have the opportunity to host the tournament and lots of local people to get to see the football. Whether that was a good thing to do in COVID times, I don't know, probably not. But but on, on the merits of the football, it was a brilliant tournament and uh, I think one we'll remember for a long time. It feels weird for, for me because usually... I remember tournaments growing up as being about the players who you really like fell in fell in love with at the tournament or you were really excited to watch play. But the best teams at the tournament have been the ones which have the best collective like mm. ethos and, and unit. And actually the the teams which relied on individuals, I'm looking at you, France, Germany and Portugal for fucking my predictions are really hard. <laughs> um but but you know, those those teams which have rely on essentially, you know, talented individuals, um didn't you know didn't perform mm. and it's a it's a weird thought that you know in other tournaments I think we spoke in the preview and the build-up but like you know Arshavin breaking through with Russia at one point when when David Veer mm. came through with with uh with Spain in 2008 yeah. you know, Manuel Neuer in 2006 yeah and at other tournaments there's star players like who come through and sort of light up and it revolves around that player this was a tournament where the collective um, sort of one mm. um, narrative was the theme of the tournament, wasn't it? But probably best shown by Denmark and what happened to Christine Eriksson. Um, and I think had they not played England, I would have liked them to have got to the final uh, just because of kind of the narrative around that and the togetherness that that they brought. And also the the fact that Denmark are a, a kind of with with the greatest respect to them, a sort of second, third tier footballing nation, but they've been there before, they've won it before, and it was quite nice to see them kind of hoping that they could do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess the other narrative as well is that these two teams that were in the final, both of them, I think in Italy and England, you've got your two favourites for the World Cup next year. Because they are... You think? I do, because... Both of them are at the start of the journey, not at the end. I think they're both going to get better and neither of them have peaked. And it will be really, really interesting to see. That's not to say that, you know... I think I all think of South America is just... Is just uh, <laughs> sat up in the chair. <laughs> they, might, they, they might do. They might do. Uh, and, and there's obviously there's things like the heat factor in Qatar that will probably count in South Americans' favour slightly more. But, um, I mean, that's not to say... You know, I think England can get better than they were in this tournament, and still not, and not get to a final in Qatar. But it will be good. To see, I think both of these teams have got a, a lot further to go, and it'll be nice to see where they end up. Jules, you mentioned that there weren't um, there weren't too many kind of standout individual performances, but uh, and it was it was kind of more about the team. But there were some uh, undoubtedly some kind of outstanding players. Uh, Ash, what's um, who stood out for you? Yeah, I'm a bit biased because I watched Italy play some of the best football that I've seen us play for a long time. And this is a player who, over the years, has had quite a lot of stick. And I think a lot of it comes because in uh, in England, we've become accustomed to, or we're certainly known for, 
aggressive, um, physical, fast football. So we expect our centre mids to be all action, um, sort of quick, strong, either scoring or at least assisting. And obviously his stats for those sort of things don't, don't stack up. But Jorginho for me is one of the best centre mids out that there is at the moment. Uh-huh. And he absolutely controlled, barring the Spain game, he absolutely controlled every single game we were in. And even, like I said, even though I said the things about him not looking like he's um, all action, he actually did more kilometres than any other player over the course of the tournament and just set a new record for the most amount of interceptions ever made, just beating, I think it was Makalele by one extra interception, as well as being the, the metronome that absolutely controlled the Italian midfield. So for me, Jorginho gets it. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. There's there's not much more I would have said Jorginho, so I'll just leave it there. But I think um, just one mention, not, not necessarily favourite player of the competition, but somebody that I was really glad to see do well was Luke Shaw. Uh, given the horrendous time he had at United under Mourinho, um, we don't to see him kind of, <laughs> to see him, to see him come back, um, and um, and not only perform consistently, but to actually be outstandingly good, I thought was really good to see. Um, so, so that was good. What about you, Jules? I think it, we would be remiss not to mention uh, Asher um, from Denmark. Um, you know, we talk about being a great player, but he demonstrated being a great captain, being a great person. Mm. Um, you know, to have to lead to have to lead that squad, I can only imagine the emotional strain that he he must be under as the leader of that group. You know, literally being the one, you know, comforting, consoling Christian Eriksen's wife on the pitch, telling the players to form the barricade so the cameras can have access. You know, the I think he demonstrated, you know, the, the very best of football. Um, yeah, he and went a step further, didn't he, and actually secured Christian Eriksen's airways and put him in the recovery position and yeah, started yeah. chest compressions as well. So to to do that, to have the, the uh, to be in the state of mind and to have the awareness to, to do that in those sort of situations, he deserves every bit of credit he gets. And uh, it was funny, I saw I saw after the after that match, um my local club you know, just a little local non-league <laughs> club on, down, down the pyramid somewhere at the very bottom. But um, we sent around a petition um, and it's going to be debated at some point in the next few weeks for all non-league clubs to have defibrillators um, and for school mm. teams as well. And I thought that that moment, that scene was was both awful and a bit of a wake-up call. And I think Ajez how he was there and then throughout the tournament, and we shouldn't forget had a bloody good tournament just as a player, yeah. um, you know, was pretty special um, and, you know, pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think um, Denmark will feel, even though they went out in the semis, they'll feel like they kind of, it was their tournament in a way, wasn't it? So, um, yeah, yeah, good on them. Um, from from that, <laughs> just, uh, just to round off, it'll be uh, good to, to laugh at ourselves. Um given that we've just been talking about what we think about football, maybe nobody should listen to us. Before the <laughs> tournament, we decided that we would uh, make some predictions uh, and then look back and see how right we were. Um, so, <laughs> no. Jules, oh. who do you think came last? Well, definitely me, because I basically <laughs> followed Andy Brassel's predictions and it backfired on me massively. So... Uh, I think it's fair to say in fourth place out of us four. 
uh, Jules, uh, with zero out of five. Uh, predicted England to get to the quarterfinal Uh, so you know not not terrible but slight underachievement there Uh, you had France as tournament winners that went well Uh, (laughs) my favourite prediction out of the lot from everyone is Turkey to reach the (laughs) semi-finals Uh, I remember actually saying in our preview pod that my big bold prediction was that whoever won the group of death would win the tournament and they all were out by the quarterfinal stage. (laughs) You also had, um, (laughs) we asked for which team would flop and you had Wales to not get out of the group, which they did. They did. They only went one stage further, but they did get out of the group. And you had his top scorer, Antoine Griezmann. Um, (laughs) Who scored one goal? <laughs> um, so that wasn't great for you, uh, but you know you cried. Um, I think fractionally better off. Tom had equally had a shocker. Uh, the the only thing that saves him is that his dark horse was Denmark, uh, who he said would get to the quarters. So he actually slightly underestimated them, but not a bad shout. Otherwise, he had England not to get out of the group. <laughs> Uh, Portugal to win it. Uh, England as his flop team. He just put C above. That went well. Uh, and top scorer, Kylian Mbappe, who scored how many goals, Ash? Zero. I can't remember seeing any. <laughs> None. <laughs> and then, uh, I mean, to be honest, we were all pretty shy, but I think uh, next, probably second, is, is me. I had England to go out in the round of 16, which isn't amazing. Portugal to win it. Again, did well there. Dark Horse, Sweden. Yeah, they got out of the group, which was all right, but they didn't go much further than that. Uh, I had Germany to be a flop, which I think is a decent shout. And Romelu Lukaku is top scorer. Uh, and in my defence, he was actually uh, one goal behind Patrick Schick and Cristiano Ronaldo, who uh, won the Golden Boot. And then Ash uh, takes the crown just about. Also had England to go out in the round of 16. Uh, had Belgium to win it, so it also had a shocker on that front. <laughs> Denmark is dark horse, good shout. Uh, said Germany wouldn't get out of the group. Not far off, not far off. Uh, and had Kane as top scorer, and like Lukaku, he was joint third. So uh, not as shocking as the rest of us, but basically we're all shit at football. The Italians bring it home again, though, lads. <laughs> oh, fuck <laughs> you. We've been holding it in. So <laughs> what I was going to say, on the basis of those predictions, if anybody listening would like uh, any uh, investment advice, uh, we do offer our services out because we're obviously brilliant at uh, predicting things. Um but anyway, we'll leave it there. Uh, the Azuri have another trophy. England don't, but we do have a lot of memories. And um, and it was all a bit of fun at the end of the day. So all's well that ends well, and uh, and we'll see you soon.